Speaker for uh, this session is Brad McNutt. Uh, Brad was born and reared in Tupelo, Mississippi. He has been married to his wife, Brooke, since July of 2008. They have three sons, Drew, Connor, and Reed. He is a graduate of the Memphis School of Preaching in 2007 and Heritage Christian University in 22. Uh, just began, uh, just, I guess, a few days ago, if you, you probably count them, his MDiv work there at Heritage also. The last 15 years, he served churches in Kentucky and Alabama. Ten years ago, he was one of the founding uh, members of the Light Network, a network of Christian podcasts. He currently preaches for the Molten Church of Christ in Molten, Alabama. That's what's on the, the sheet, the card for me to read about about Brad. I was going to add to that, not just uh, founded the Light Network, but I think right now has three shows on the network. Um, and I uh, would certainly encourage you to... To look at that, not just uh, not just uh, his private or personal show with the book club, but the others that he helps to facilitate. Uh, very informative and encouraging stuff. And some of you may be here because of what you've heard from Brad on the Light Network. Um, but all the things that could be said there, um, I'll add personally, Brad is a dear friend of mine. And uh, a friendship that began several years ago now and uh, that my life would not be the same without. And I appreciate him uh, for a host of reasons. And uh, probably the, the number one is uh, his humble, studious nature. He loves the Word of God. He loves to study the Word of God. Uh, some of the conversations in my life that have helped me more than any conversations have been conversations we've had riding back to and from the church building or to get something to eat too late at night uh, during a lectureship or something just about Bible passages and theology and concepts. And so I knew when we assigned him topics and, and text that he would dig into them, he would get he would get to the bottom of them, he would he would find treasures in them. And so I have no doubt this lesson and the one he will preach uh, again on Sunday after lunch will be a benefit to you if you can hear both of them. So I'm not going to take any more of his time and ask Brad to come and preach to us. Preach the word. Well, it's kind of interesting how God works things. So I had been praying for quite some time that uh, I needed a mentor, someone I could really depend upon. And then randomly, one month, I get this message from Wayne Jones, who I knew his dad taught me in preaching school. And he's saying, hey, you ever thought about coming to Focal Point? I said, yeah, actually, I almost came this year. And uh, the rest is kind of history from there. And uh, so I, I love and appreciate them more than, than words can describe. Our study this particular session is entitled Nearer My God to Thee from Psalm 84. When you look at the landscape of Scripture, there is one story that particularly dominates the narrative. And that is the story of God's desire to dwell with His people. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, we see the creation in perfection. Certain implications of chapter 3, when God comes down looking for them, would seem to imply, I'm not saying that it's a fact, I'm saying it seems to imply that there was regular communion between God and Adam and Eve. Okay? Then, of course, sin enters into the world, tears all that up. Genesis 3, 22 to 24, that inter-Trinitarian conversation where they say, we've got to send man out of the garden. And we're going to separate him from the tree of life. And from that point, the rest of the Bible is God saying, I will not rest until I have my people back with me. If you think about it, when you come then 
and you look at the tabernacle and the temple. Exodus 40, 1 Kings chapter 8. And the presence of God comes down and He dwells in their midst once again. That was God's starting this process of bringing the people of God, of bringing His people and dwelling with His people. But you remember it was restricted, right? Only certain people could go certain places. By the time you get to the temple area, you've got Gentiles and, and, and the court of women. And then you've got the court of Jewish men. And then you've got the holy place. And you've got the most holy place where God's presence was. And only one guy could go in there for a short time on one day. But then something fascinating happens. As John opens his gospel, he says that the Word, who is God, He became flesh and dwelt. And the word translated dwelt literally means to tabernacle. Almost as if John is telling us we should be perking up our ears and picking up on the imagery. And then the next chapter in chapter 2, when he predicts his death, he connects himself to the temple. When he says, look, you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. What is he doing? It appears to me he's connecting himself with the tabernacle in one and the temple in two. Then... As the church begins and the Spirit begins to take up residence in believers, both individually, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, and collectively, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, God is dwelling in His people in a way. Think about going from a restricted access. I'm not a Jew. I can't even get into the court of men, certainly can't get into the holy place, and certainly cannot get into the most holy place. But you remember when Jesus dies, that veil is rent. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says, oh, by the way, that was God saying the way to heaven is now open. And so God is dwelling in our midst. He's dwelling inside of us until one day we dwell together again permanently. That's the end of the revelation. And so that's this story that kind of dominates. <clears throat> but when you look at the book of Psalms and you look in the Old Testament in particular, um, <clears throat> There's this driving desire, not only for God to be with His people, but for God's people, they have a driving desire to be with Him. And that pushes them and forces them in so many different ways. And what is so interesting is that the way many people present Christianity is that it's slavery and drudgery. But you wouldn't get that if you read the Bible. That's not what you would walk away with. You would find people obsessed with the notion of being in God's presence. One of my favorite texts is Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Amen. It's the only thing He wanted. That's what, that's what He says I'm living for. And so, this psalm that we're going to look at, Psalm 84, is very similar in sentiment to Psalm 27 in verse 4. So what I want us to do before we launch into the study is read the psalm and put it in front of us, and then we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking what we find. So Psalm 84, read with me. 84, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV uh, in case there are any variations. <clears throat> the superscription reads, To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. 
Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look at the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So as we think about this psalm, I want us to spend some time, first of all, looking at the character of the psalm. Okay? Many times what we do is we jump into the Psalms and start reading them without considering the nature of the book itself. And you and I both know that's a recipe for disaster. And we might get certain things from them, but we're going to miss the true depths that God has intended for us if we don't look at them correctly. So let's think about that for a few minutes. First of all, I want us to think about the location of this Psalm. Okay? As Psalm 84... Now, for many years, a lot of people have believed that the Psalms were just this hodgepodge of, and some people call it song books, but actually, it's very much a prayer book. That's very much what it is. Okay? And so, they viewed it like a hodgepodge of songs and prayers just randomly thrown together. In their mind, something like Proverbs, although Proverbs, when you really pay attention to it, has some structure to it. So, scholarship now is moving to recognizing that, you remember, there are five books in the Psalms. Okay? Now that comes from the seams. There's a statement made at the seams of the Psalms. Okay? And um, it's kind of like the five teaching sections of Matthew. I'm pretty sure that that's what Matthew is intending for us to see. Can I prove to you without beyond the shadow of a doubt that's what Matthew is saying? No, because Matthew doesn't come out and say, section one has now ended, begin teaching section two. <laughs> but there is a repetitive phrase, right? When Jesus had finished all these sayings. So we infer from that, rightly so I think, there are five teaching sections. The same is true with the five books of the Psalms. There are phrases that are found at the seams that seem to tell us, hey, somebody's been sewing something together right here. And so in these five books, scholars have really spent a lot of time over the last 10 to 15 years, which the world of scholarship is slow, okay? And that's not a knock against scholarship. It's just the the nature of it. So um, let me kind of illustrate this for you. To get to modern-day cutting research and scholarship, a man has to first go and, or a woman has to first go and research a subject, then they have to go to a convention somewhere and present it and receive feedback. All right. Then after they receive that feedback, they have to go through an editing process and writing, and then they have to submit it to academic journals. Right? And then they might or might not like it. And then if they do, they have to wait and get you in the lineup somewhere. And once they get you in the lineup and it's published, it's got to be peer-reviewed. And then you might find it five to ten years later in a commentary somewhere. Okay? So, the nature of biblical research, to, but of all things, don't you think the Bible deserves that type of attention to it? 
If we're going to propose ideas about what the Bible is saying, shouldn't we scrutinize them very closely? Yes, sir. Okay. So this is where most things go. And this is referencing the work of Dr. Jim Hamilton at Southern Seminary, who's written a two-volume commentary on the Psalms recently. And so in his analysis, book one speaks of the suffering of the historical David. Now these are general. Can you always find exceptions along the way? Sure. Okay, so book one, the suffering of the historical David. Book two, the reign of the historical David. Book three, the end of the historical David's house. So when you come to the end of Psalm 80, you come to Psalm 89, there is a real struggle in the psalmist's mind of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. And now something has happened that has shattered their confidence in that promise, which seems to be, when you look in the Old Testament history, the moment where that, that promise seemed to be shattered was when? Well, when they went into captivity. Okay, that has then led them. Have you ever noticed that book 4, Psalm 90 begins it and it's a prayer of Moses? Moses was the original mediate bringing over the covenant, right? And so that has led Hamilton in his analysis to describe the book 4 of the Psalms as Moses intercedes for the Davidic covenant. The original founder is calling and interceding to God in the Psalms on behalf of God's original covenant. And then the fifth section, the fifth book, the conquest of the future Davidic king. Now look, I'm not randomly giving you facts. This is going somewhere, okay? People say, how does that change the way we read Psalms? Let's look. All right, so Psalm 84 then would find itself in book 3, which would discuss the end of the historical David's house. Listen to this discussion that Hamilton gives as he summarizes Psalms 78 to 85. Go look at the content of the psalm and I promise you he's being accurate in his reflection. He says, as we've seen the history of Israel's disobedience in Psalm 78, and that's all Psalm 78 is, followed by the damage to the temple in Psalm 79, which prompts a plea for restoration in 80, followed by the anticipation of of the fulfillment of the feast in 81, the judgment of the gods in Psalm 82, the judgment of the nations in Psalm 83. In Psalm 84, we arrive at the celebration of the city which is followed by the worship of the Lord for His righteous loving kindness in Psalm 85. So what he's saying is this. Put the story together. Don't just read the Psalms as disconnected from each other. Read them as being interconnected. Okay? So if in 78 Israel has disobeyed and in 79 because of that disobedience damage has come to the temple and then in 80 the the people of God if their temple has been sacked what are they going to be praying for? Restoration. And then they want the feast back in 81 and oh by the way God you need to judge the gods and the nations who perpetrated this. 82 and 83. And now that we're back at the temple for worship in 84, we're thrilled. And that's our song. So, let's think about the categories of songs for a minute, and this will further illustrate what we're talking about. Dr. Walter Brueggemann wrote a 
in, in many circles, is considered to be a groundbreaking essay on the Psalms. And he characterized all of the Psalms can fall into one of three categories. You have Psalms of orientation. That is where it talks about what a life looks like following God. You have Psalms of disorientation, where that model, that method, that reality is shattered at its very core. And then you have Psalms of reorientation. When God from the ashes of that disaster of disorientation brings something out and creates for them a new reality, thus reorientation. Now think about this for a minute. If Hamilton is right in his guess about Psalm 84 and its location, that would actually, if you're looking at this psalm without trying to understand any of the background, you would say that's a psalm of orientation. Because it's about the blessed reality of being in the presence of God for temple worship. That's what normal following God should look like. But actually, if in the context, it's in the flow of God punishing His people for their sinfulness, and now they're being restored back to that worship, it would make this a psalm of reorientation. This is, these are the words of a man who is rejoicing, not that he gets to go to the temple, and that's something I've always understood and done, but the, God, the thought of a man who has been to the temple, God has punished his nation and kept them away from the temple, and now he's allowed to go back. Now you can sense the excitement that is coming through the, through the words of the psalmist. Further, <clears throat> this is characterized unofficially as a Zion psalm. Psalms 46, 48, 76, and this one 84 are called Zion psalms because of their focus on Jerusalem. Alright? This seems to be what became known as a pilgrimage psalm. So you remember, every year they're required to go to Jerusalem for their feasts. Okay? And I promise you, all this is going somewhere. This is not an information dump for the sake of an information dump. <laughs> this is about... See, this is where most people make their mistakes in interpretation. They miss the depth of the meaning because they're afraid to explore the depth of the background. <laughs> so pilgrimage psalms, they're supposed to go. Well, they would travel from far distances. So what would people do? Well, they would travel in that culture for safety in large caravans. By the way, the account at the end of Luke chapter 2 where Jesus is making the journey and his parents to Jerusalem as a 12-year-old boy. You remember his parents, they didn't really worry about him because he was a typical 12-year-old boy. And they said, oh, he must be where? Among the people. That's a pilgrimage caravan. It's a group of people having been to Jerusalem to worship and they're leaving. This is one of the songs they would have sung as they're traveling because they can't turn on the radio. <laughs> So they sing songs to help them with their anticipation of arriving at worship. Now Psalm 84 just got a little more interesting, in it, didn't it? Because now you've got a 12-year-old Jesus that was probably singing this song. 
Oh, and by the way, in Luke 19, when he makes his way through Jericho, <clears throat> on his way up to Jerusalem, you know what he's also in again as an adult? He's in a pilgrimage caravan. You know what he's singing again? A lot of things, but one of them is 84. Building and heightening the anticipation of coming to Jerusalem for worship. So, <clears throat> let's think about the psalm for a little bit. I want to point out a couple of things about the movement of the psalm. So when we're studying a text, we don't get to make just arbitrary breaks and say, you know, for my purposes here, I think I'm going to make this text stop here, make this section stop here, and then I'm going to move to another section. And You don't get to create sections. The sections are there. Your job is to discover the sections. That's the intent of the author. So, there are a number of things when we look at this psalm that are structural markers to us. First of all, there is the term Selah at the end of verse 4 and at the end of verse 8. It's a much debated term. It may, be, may have something to do with a musical interlude, such as, you know, we've stopped here and we're going to have a, a musical interlude of an instrument or something right here, and then we'll continue on in just a moment. It could just mean it's a time to pause. It, no one really knows for sure. So, you see Selah there, and in those sections, if I'm looking at this song, and I get to a point and it says Selah, so a stop or a musical interlude, what does that usually tell you? Verse 1 is ended. Now we begin into verse 2, and then it goes, oh, Selah. Well, people say there's not one at the end. You don't need one at the end. It's the end of the song. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not really hard to put together. <clears throat> Further, when we look at this psalm, you will notice that it is bound by an inclusio or an envelope. Inclusio, you know, sometimes we like our special fancy words. All it means is you've got a statement at the beginning and a statement at the end that are the same, and it kind of tells you, Oh, I'm summing it up. You have to remember this is written many times for an oral culture. They're waiting for the cues they can hear with their ears. And so it begins with, <clears throat> O Lord of hosts. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And then it closes, O Lord of hosts. And so it's showing us that it's a continuous flow and thought. Furthermore, the term blessed is used three times in the context. In verse 4, in verse 5, and in verse 12. Those are all structural markers that need to be considered when you're studying it. This is how we're going to look at the psalm. If this is a pilgrimage song and psalm, and I think it is, I think it breaks very simply into these sections, three verses. So verse 1, verses 1 through 4, is about longing to be at the temple to worship. Then in verses 5 through 8, it's about them traveling to the temple to worship. And then in verses 9 through 12, it is them having arrived at the temple to worship. Okay? So let's begin looking at the words of the superscription. Superscriptions. Are they inspired or are they not? It depends on who you read. 
they are very, very prevalent in all of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts that we have. Okay? Make of that what you will. That's beyond my pedigree to answer for you. But there is, they are, at the very least, they should be respected. They should not be disregarded. Okay? This superscription reads to the choir master. You remember in Nehemiah 12 was there uh, celebrating the rededication of the temple in verses 27 to 43 they have the choir of God helping them in that worship and a choir master or kind of the director of that is there leading them and you have to remember this is meant to be played to music and so this is how it is to be sung and so these are directions to the choir master according to the Gittith which some people believe has reference to something to do with the city of Gath. Okay? Some people, these are, here are the five different basic ideas behind this. Number one, that it describes the melody of the song. Number two, that it describes some type of instrument that was to be played. Number three, that it was a ritual action, something that was involved in their movements. Number four, that it was an instrument originating in Gath. I lied to you, there are six. <clears throat> Number five, they th others think it is a tune of the song, and others associate this with the wine press and harvest festivals. So a, a joyous occasion. All right? So that's not very clear, but it is something we need to consider. Of the sons of Korah, sons of Korah composed a number of the songs. Okay. For an example, one psalm very similar to this one is Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water, so longs my soul after you. Psalm 42 and Psalm 84, if you were to just take them and lay them side by side, they are very, very similar. Okay. The sons of Korah most likely has reference to this group of guys who were involved in the keeping of the... Gotta be kidding me. Um, <clears throat> Roughly. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so we're gonna speed it up even faster. They were involved as gatekeepers. You can look at First Chronicles six, First Chronicles nine, and you can see them being involved in gatekeepers. There's also the faint notion, and I mean faint notion, that maybe this has reference to the Korah and Korah's rebellion in number sixteen. Think about how that changes the way you read. I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying think about how it would change the way you read it. Why did Korah and his cohorts rebel? Moses, you've taken on too much. Now, we have a job to serve to transport the holy vessels of the tabernacle, but we weren't content to do that. Now, do you remember what these sons of Korah write? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. It changes the way you read it. So, <clears throat> let's move in to the words of longing. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. This, word, this term, phraseology, lovely, is seen especially in wisdom literature books describing the relationships of lovers. Okay? So a very strong and loving relationship that exists. How lovely are your dwelling, your translation may read dwelling places because in Hebrew it is plural. Okay? And it could be that he's talking about the temple compound. It could be that he's using it in a more intensified type form and just kind of an explosion of energy. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord, covenant name for God, of hosts, 
the one who commands armies. How lovely is your dwelling place. My soul longs. Longs. This is the same word used in Genesis 31-30 when Jacob longs to go back and be home. Yes, and it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they sing for joy. Even the sparrow finds a home. The swallow, is a, finds, the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my, God, my King and my God. Listen to what he's saying. Your dwelling place is beautiful. My soul is longing. As Golden Gate describes this, it's a holy lovesickness. I just miss it. Now, during COVID, we got a chance to feel what that was like. When I had to walk into a building and my office is right next to the auditorium and I pass it all the time and you're just looking at it going, I wonder when we're going to get back. We didn't realize how much we depended on it and how much we needed it until we didn't have it. Now, if this is a psalm of disorientation, the psalmist is feeling the same way. I didn't realize how lovely, how beautiful. I'm going to tell you something. That our building that was built in the 70s never looked so pretty as when it was filled with everybody first again after COVID. Amen. And we're not beautiful people there. <laughs> All right? And so you see this sense, and then he speaks almost with a holy jealousy and says, man, can you imagine just getting, you know, if I could just be a bird. Because the bird, they get to live in the, the crevices. They get to build their nests in those types of places. Your altars. The altars in the Old Testament, you remember something like 1 Kings 1, 50 and 51 when um, Adonijah clung to the horns of the altar for protection. Or Leviticus 1-9, through it was there a symbol of forgiveness and offering and sacrifice. The psalmist is meditating on those things. Then he says this, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. How cool would it be to have that be your full-time job? That's what he's saying. You get to be there all the time. Do you see how different this is than the common notion that people have about coming to worship? The common notion that worship is a boring experience to be endured. It looks to me like a life-altering moment life-defining moment. So he's longing to go. So he packs his stuff and now they start traveling. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. The blessings of God rest upon the individual who find their strength in Him. In whose heart are the highways to Zion? You know what these people are always thinking about? When do I get to go back to Jerusalem? When do I get to go back? It's not like, man, I can't wait for this to be over so I can go home. 
It's more like, man, I can't wait to wake up so I can go. Amen. That is very different than many of the notions that are held by so many people. As they go through the Valley of Baca, a a debated phrase, there are three basic ideas behind it. One believes it to be the Valley of Rephaim, west of Jerusalem. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 5 with David. Some believe it to be a veil, to describe a veil of tears because of Philistine raids. And others, the deliverance of Israel by God under the reign of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20. Regardless of the location, it would seem that the Valley of Baca is a very difficult place. Because he says they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Okay, And so it's the idea that this almost desert-like place becomes Eden. And so rain, especially in this culture, carried with it the connotations of blessings. You remember part of the covenant blessings were what? You get the early and the latter rain. The early rain as you plant it, and that last rain at the end right before the harvest to push it over the end. That was part, those were part of the covenant blessings of God. And so what is he saying here? <clears throat> he could be saying a couple of things. One of which is, even though it may be a long, arduous journey to get to Jerusalem, you enjoy every bit of that journey because you know where the destination leads. Or maybe it's difficulties. You learn how to flip difficulties into blessings. He says they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion as they were summons to do in Exodus 23 and verse 17. As you get closer... Now, I can't draw on that thing. The whiteboard's behind it. And I don't have time to raise it. So, you've got people... Let's say Jerusalem is here. This little green thing here. You've got caravans coming from the north. You've got caravans coming from the south. Caravans coming from east and west. And as they get closer, all these caravans are growing and they're assimilating into one another and they're going from strength to strength. They're getting bigger and bigger. And as they get near to Jerusalem, just a massive crowd begins to overtake it and head up to the Temple Mount. It's beautiful. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer and give give ear, O God of Jacob. Give me that which I desire. Then they have arrived. In verse 9, Behold our shield, O God. Look at the face of your anointed, which most likely Psalm 89, 18 has reference to the Davidic line, the king. It's almost like they've entered Jerusalem. Oh, and there's the palace of the king. Bless the king. Then he says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. We understand he's using hyperbole. But if you just did the numbers, he's saying this, I'd give three years of my life for one day at the temple. That is a deep love for something. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Why? Because in the tents of the wicked, God is absent. This whole thing about the temple, it's not that they worshipped the temple. The temple is being spoken of because it represents the place where God is. This is about being in the presence of God. That's what this is about. 
okay? <clears throat> so he says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. He brings light. He's a shield, a protector, especially as He was to Israel. The Lord bestows favor and honor or grace and glory, as some others would say. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's a wisdom literature way of, of the general rule that God abundantly blesses and especially blesses His people. It's not a hard and fast rule that says nothing bad ever happens. It's a wisdom literature phrase that says... The life of the righteous is blessed. See Psalm 1. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Look what I get to experience. The person who doesn't trust you, they don't get to experience this. You know, we sing the song, We're Marching to Zion. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. They've never known the joy of going to Zion. Two applications very quickly. One I think is is blatantly obvious and that is the application to worship. Jesus of course in John 4 said that it wouldn't be a physical location that would dominate us, right? Worship wouldn't be restricted to a physical place. Even though He Himself found it to be very important, Luke 4 in verse 16 in His own worship in the synagogue. But Hebrews 10 and verse 25 often misunderstood, miscited, and misapplied. If you look at it in its context, it is more about gathering and encouraging one another by acknowledging what God has done to open the way to heaven for us all. That's what it's about. To forsake the assembly is to run the risk of forgetting what God has done for you in Christ. Listen to this statement. And I know I'm right on time and over maybe a little bit, but I'm almost done too. So, One writer put it this way, Psalm 84 is about movement. From the outside to the inside, from the countryside to Jerusalem and to the temple, from ordinary to extraordinary, from daily concerns to a sacred space. In the years past, there was a process of preparation for Sunday service. It was a special separate time required, that required a Sunday bath and sun, Saturday bath and Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. Like these pilgrims, the process, this process sets Sunday apart from all other days around it. In our on-the-go world, our trips to meet God have lost some of that specialness. This psalm reminds us that we, need, that we should make an effort to celebrate the time we are able to spend in worship and praise. I have nothing to add that's too good. <laughs> the second thing is the blessing of the, pre- of the presence of God. Is there any way to read this psalm and think, you know what, he could probably take or leave God. No. The notion of God and being in the presence of God that's the only thing that drives him. Amen. He doesn't want anything else. And you can see other statements in Psalm 42, Psalm 43, Psalm 63. And this is what we have to understand. We were created to live in God's presence and there is nothing in this world that can truly satisfy us until we are back in His presence. Amen. That's it. So... 
when we begin to understand what God has done for us in Christ, how He put on flesh, bore our sins, when we read Psalm 84, we don't look at it and go, man, that's kind of peculiar. We read it and go, yeah, that's normal. Who wouldn't feel that way? I want to leave you with this statement. <clears throat> Dr. Hamilton, once again in his book, he observed this. Psalm 84 invites us to know God the way the sons of Korah who wrote this psalm did. Listen to this description. Ravished by His goodness, satisfied in His love, freed from the chains of sinful pleasure, blessed to dwell in God's house, to know His strength for the long road, to trust Him, ever singing His praise. Doesn't that sound awesome? Amen. That's our life. That's our life. Let's live that way. Thank you for your time. <clears throat>